And that's the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong and your guest presenter is Danny Gitchings. On today's program, we're talking about under-enrolled schools in Hong Kong. A school in Zhengzhou is at risk of eventually closing down after the authorities decided to block it from taking any new Primary 1 students in the next academic year. That's after it fell just one short of the required quota of 16 students. To secure its future, the school is considering alternatives such as self-financing its P1 class through parents or sponsors or merging with another school. Amid a dwindling student population, more and more schools are coming under pressure of closure. Some in the sector have suggested various ways of addressing the issue, such as by bringing in more cross-border students. But could this work, or are there other viable ways to save schools from closure? And is this just part of a necessarily painful transition process? After 9.40, we'll look at a new species of box jellyfish found in Hong Kong. So let us know what you think. You can go on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio Free, or you can email us at backchat at rthk.hk, or give us a call. The number there, 233-88266. Joining our discussion this morning, we have in our Kowloon Tong studio, Mervyn Chung, chairman of the Hong Kong Policy Concern Organization. And on the line, we have Leung Siu Tong, honorary president of the Hong Kong Aided Primary School Heads Association, and Dion Chen, chairman of the Hong Kong Direct Subsidy Scheme Schools Council. Good morning to you all, and thanks for joining us on the program. Now, Mr. Leung, um, let's first get yes. your view on how authorities are handling the issues surrounding uh, these shrinking student population here. Um, what, what do you think of their approach? Yes. And what do you think of the approach um, in terms of dealing with the shrinking student population? Is it right to force schools to close, Mr. Leung? Yes. Uh, actually, I do think that the case should be thing of a special case, right? Uh, you know that Changzhou is a very uh, quite a big uh, population uh, area, and I know that there are some schools in the Changzhou, right? But uh, Hong Kong uh, Primary School, actually, it is uh, situated at the northern part of the Changzhou. And, and that is the only one primary school in the northern part of the Changzhou. Uh, so, in this case, if it is uh, closed down uh, immediately, and then uh, the primary one uh, parents, so they will have a little bit hesitation. They have to uh, study at some other part of the Changzhou uh, that is uh, create a little bit uh, problem. That the students they have to to walk uh, quite a long distance to the. Uh, the other schools in the Changzhou. That is one of the issues that I think it is a special case. So uh, maybe um, the, the EDB should think of this. This is one of ideas. Right. Okay. All right. And uh, looking at what what um, is happening to the uh, school in Chengchou, um, are, are other aided schools in your association worried or, or are they facing less of a problem when it comes to um, student intake? Uh, I do think that they have tried their best to uh, intake more people, but of course uh, they have different kinds of uh, ideas. So uh, it is a very hard job for those parents. They have to walk a long, long distance from the Lofton Park 
of the Changzhou to the southern part of the Changzhou to get to other schools. But what about other aided schools um, that that are that are members of your association? I mean, what do they uh, think? I mean, are they worried about this case, or are they facing uh, less of a problem? Yes, of course. All, all the primary school principal they have to face to this kind of the decline of the school age population. Uh, they have to work very hard. They have tried to uh, persuade all the uh, parents around the district to join their school. But uh, for this special case, I do think that they can uh, accept that the, the government, the EDB, can have some uh, some uh, uh, measure to to let them to uh, get this kind of intake uh, one or two more students, uh, so that they can. <coughs> have the primary one school over there because it's a very special situation. All right, let us bring in uh, Mr. Chen. I know uh, you're the uh, chairman of the Hong Kong Direct Subsidy Scheme Schools Council. Um, uh, is the shrinking student population having uh, less of an impact on DSS schools? Well, certainly. Uh, the decline of the student population is not just going to affect the uh, aid sector, but also like the DSS as well as the international school as well. So that's why like in these few days, like, a lot of uh, you know figures released by the government, we can see that the number of students dropped uh, truly affect the various factors. And uh, DSS school, of course, like uh, quite a lot of us were very popular and welcomed by the parents. But the number of applications we, of course, first of all, we do not see the drop of the number of applications. But of course, at the end, the number of students coming into the school and when they come into the senior level of the primary or secondary, we can see the number of, uh, we can see the decreasing trend. Because a lot of students like in the senior form or senior primary, they probably the family plans, they leave Hong Kong and so on and so forth. It would directly affect the number, total number of students in school. Yes, that's the real problem, isn't it? I mean, if we look at these schools that have not very close to the, mar the, the, the margin of 16 students, which they need to start a primary one class, but even if they successfully start a class with um, 16 students at primary one, by the time you get to primary five or six, and maybe half those students will be gone, you have a very, very small class, won't you? And I imagine similar issues might arise in secondary schools, Mr. Chen. Well, certainly. And uh, for like Kem Kong schools, the situation are a little bit different because, like, uh, because of their geographical situation. And uh, if talking about the, the schools in the city centre, then of course, number uh, only got 16 students in or below 16 students in a particular year would be quite challenging, especially when that cohort comes into the senior form or senior primary. Uh, of course, then the situation is not as good as we expect the number of students. For like uh, for Kemcon situation, we we all believe that because of the geographical situation, whether there could be some sort of a special measures for them, I think this is uh, considerable. All right, you just mentioned uh, the Kemcon uh, Primary School in Chengchou. Um, let's go to uh, Mr. Chung. Um, of course, uh, the the Chengchou school we're talking about, it, it was given a, a choice uh, to self finance a class or, or merge with other institutions. Um, Mr. Chung, is that the best long-term solution to this problem of under-enrolled schools? Well, at most I can say that uh, this is something which can be done uh, on a transitional basis. Because after all, uh, Hong Kong, in, in, in terms of the school education, uh, does face um, two you know, major problems. One is um, the declining student population. And there is also, the, uh, which is further complicated by the, by the phenomenon of uh, 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 dropping uh, 
uh, birth rate. For instance, last year we we had only thirty two thousand uh, births. Um, so I think uh, it's really a problem. So uh, uh, what the government would need to do is to think about the long term, whether or not existing schools should be preserved uh, through uh, various ways, and and uh, at the same time to, uh, the the question of uh, quality improvement has really been done to um, to, uh, to most schools. Uh, or offering uh, basic education to our, to our children. Yes, we did have a statement from the uh, Education Bureau, which I think is t- it's too long to read out of there, isn't it? But they, they made clear, right? They said that this is, uh, this is uh, the decline in the school age population is not transient, it's structural. This is a long term, as you were saying, long term issues to do dealt with. And also saying that having schools which are too small is not just, uh, it's not just about money. They also said, well, it's, um, it's not good for the development of the children if they're in schools that re- really are very, very small. Is that that point? Yes, uh, well, it. it, it Yes, the, uh, the problem we are facing is a, is a long-term one. We have to tackle it uh, with uh, you know long, long-term methods. So if the, the decline in uh, student population is a is a decri- uh, is a, a structural thing, then we we need to tackle it directly you know, uh, at at the root of the problem. One possibility, uh, which has been suggested by some educators, is to import students. Uh, in these days, we talk. Quite, quite, quite extensively on, on say the Greater Bay Area. So, would there be some kind of through it uh, between stu- um, students on 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 both sides, the Hong Kong in relation to to the Greater Bay Area? Now, uh, for for I think over a decade, we we have been talking about uh, converting Hong Kong into an education hub, at least in, you know for uh, uh, in Asia. So, can we also? Promotes the image of Hong Kong as as a, a quite quite as a favorable education hub to uh, to other Southeast Asian uh, 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 regions, so that uh, students can be attracted to study here. And of course, uh, there would be ample opportunity for us to attract students from uh, from the mainland, which is uh, capable of offering uh, a, a, a more permanent solution to our shortage of student problem. Right. I have a Facebook message here from a listener, Henry, and he says a declining student trend is happening as seen from birth statistics over the years. Surely the trend would continue and even a dramatic fall in birth rate in COVID years will be a more harsh reality down the road. To get cross-border students is not an alternative. These students face increasing pressure from time and money spent on traffic, adjustments to Hong Kong and mainland school life and academic development. It's not easy for kids and their parents. And no doubt their personal and academic development would be affected. And uh, that message is from Henry. And uh, he doesn't seem to think uh, that bringing in uh, students from the mainland would work. Um, Mr. Chen, what do you think? Well, I think like not just only focusing on the students from mainland, but also from overseas. And uh, Hong Kong as an international city, I trust that like, Hong Kong education could be a... a an international education hub, not just only for the region, even for the rest of the world. So if the students, they're interested to come to Hong Kong to learn, I trust that the quality education in Hong Kong can provide them a good learning experience. Uh, of course, like if some students, if they travel from their home to Hong Kong, then we need to provide certain infrastructure. 
uh, quite a lot of Hong Kong students they also study abroad, like in in the UK or in the in the, in the USA and so on and so forth. And they have a very good facilities for these um, overseas students. So I trust that Hong Kong that we can also consider about this a little bit more. And uh, of course, uh, some of the education policies we need to further uh, review and also maybe give a little bit uh, re- relaxation so that the schools in Hong Kong, no matter DSS school or either school, we can also help to uh, bring Hong Kong education to the next higher level. All right. And, and Mr. Leung, what's your view on this? I mean, do you think bringing in students from uh, outside of Hong Kong would help? Like Mr. Uh, Chen is suggesting uh, international students. Yes, actually. <coughs> I think that uh, uh, for some area in the, like, law. Uh, uh, in in the quite near the, the border, they can have a lot of this kind of the uh, students from the Sunjun or something like that. Uh, I think that, that they can be favored for this kind of uh, uh, policy. But uh, of course, a little bit difficult is for those uh, they, uh, in the mainland, uh, in in the uh, city, or in the uh, in the Hong Kong Island, something like that. It is very hard for the students to get. Uh, it is a little bit hard for the schools to get the students from the border. So, uh, but of course, this is one of the uh, issues that that we can uh, appreciate that uh, more pupils from from different countries can go uh, come to our uh, to come to Hong Kong schools and then they can experience a, a different international wise uh, study. But if I appreciate it. If they want to come to Hong Kong to experience an internationalized study, they're going to go to international schools. I mean, in fact, we already see that, don't we? I mean, some international schools in Hong Kong are very, you know, some people even say they're not really international schools anymore because they're, they're so popular with mainlanders. Um, how would a government school, um, and perhaps even a lower band one, how, how, how is that going to attract people to come to Hong Kong to study? And actually, I do think that uh, nowadays uh, quite a lot and most of the schools, they have tried their different kind of experience, uh, and all the teachers are, are well qualified, then they sure can uh, 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 provide a lot of uh, good experience in teaching to different countries or, or around the world. So I do think that they can uh, manage all this kind of the teaching and learning as well. Mervyn Chung, you were nodding just now when I was making that comment about how that um, mainland students tend to be coming to Hong Kong or they, they, they want a sort of international experience in, in inter- and they can afford to as well. They, um, they've been sent by families who are relatively well off. Yeah, uh, that, that's the case. Now, in fact, uh, if we want to attract uh, students, especially from the, uh, from the, uh, uh, from the West to, to come over to Hong Kong to study, uh, most likely uh, they will end up to, uh, doing their study in, in uh, Hong Kong international schools. Yeah, they can't go to local schools. Their Chinese wouldn't be good enough, would it? Um, yeah, that, uh, that's a problem. So unless they can uh, overcome the, um, the difficulties, in, uh, especially in the la- language of uh, instruction and learning uh, in, in the transition period, they would have a really a hard time. really have a hard time because basically uh, the majority of the schools in Hong Kong, especially at the primary school level, would would have the classes uh, conducted in in in, uh, in Cantonese. But even if it's an English medium school, instruction they, they still their Chinese still has to be good enough for the Chinese classes, doesn't it? So it's not it's very difficult to see how these kind of schools could rely on uh, people coming from outside Hong Kong. Yes, uh, that uh, uh, well that, that that's really a problem, uh, especially if they are uh, DSE oriented. 
then to, uh, the subject of uh, Chinese language is really important. So unlike previously, in, uh, remember that in some local schools, uh, especially those uh, uh, you know, at the elite level, they can choose a second language uh, you know, by taking a French or German uh, instead of Chinese or Chinese history. But now the situation has changed. So um, I think uh, in, in attracting students from outside of Hong Kong, the primary target would still be the areas close to Hong Kong, uh, that is uh, Shamchan uh, uh, and the like. So um, if we want to um, take in students from, from uh, you know, far-off regions like, uh, uh, like Europe, uh, America, or Australia, that won't be easy because uh, in the end, they, they would only um, make deal with the international schools. But of course, uh, uh, an under-enrollment is, is currently becoming a problem in, in international schools because it's been uh, reported that uh, there's a drop of uh, 12 point something percent in, in the enrollment. Mm. So that, that would also be a help uh, if we can uh, uh, bring in students from, uh, from the Western countries. The international schools are taking schools from the local system, school system and then the local school system is crying foul about that and because uh, they're being deprived of students. Yeah, that, that's, that's the case, especially from the you know, well-to-do families. Oh, so. Let's ask maybe let's ask Dion Chen, because uh, this was in the news this week. Dion Chen, you're the chair of the Hong Kong Direct Subsidy uh, Scheme Schools Council. Are, are, are you and your members concerned about uh, this, this trend uh, that uh, is taking away students probably from DSS schools? Mm-hmm. Now, I, I would like to echo to what just discussed about the, uh, whether students from overseas or from China can manage the Hong Kong Rural Club. Uh, in the in the past like 15 or 20 years, you can see that quite a lot of Hong Kong schools, they, or, they have already established various programs for students who are not um, knowing Chinese to, uh, you know, gradually settling in, settling in into the uh, schools in Hong Kong. And I know that quite a lot of schools, they have like Chinese as a second language program for the students who never or who has a little bit Chinese language background. And also these schools, uh, the students having a very good performance uh, in the past. And you can also see from a lot of news reported about the achievement of these non-local students or overseas students. So I trust that like uh, with, a, with some support from the government and also especially the uh, very clear policy that the school and also the teachers, we can uh, further enhance our curriculum to support the students from overseas or, or even from mainland. Yes, uh, we understand that we also can see that like uh, the number of students uh, from overseas studying in the international schools sort of declining and uh, the number of the local students studying in international school are, are rising. So this is something we're concerned a lot, especially like uh, the international schools, quite a lot of them, they have a certain service agreement stated that the number of or the percentage of taking the local or and, uh, international students. So that ratio that I trust that and we should uh, continue to keep it uh, because international school, they have their uh, special positions in Hong Kong to serve the international students, not only the local students. But then you are essentially, I mean, if there are, the international students simply don't exist at the moment and there is demand from local students, you're, you're essentially saying that the local students should be forced away, even though there is demand, just because of, um, because of these fi- fixed numbers. Well, I think the situation has not just happened today. Uh, I can't say that we force them to study a local curriculum in Hong Kong, that we still have a lot of uh, options for these students or for their parents. 
but international school, they have a very clear, um, you know, purpose for setting it up in Hong Kong. Uh, the main purpose for them is for serving the international students. And uh, if there are not enough number of international students, so the uh, the vacancies should not be just use the local student to, you know, fill it up. Right. And uh, I just want to go back to Mr. Cho. I mean, you're suggesting uh, bringing in more uh, students from the mainland or from um, other countries in the West. Um, what sort of impact do you think it will have on the overall education system if, if we did do that? And, uh, and do you think it will be welcomed by parents and uh, uh, teachers? Well, as, as I said earlier, Hong Kong is an international city and we, I trust that parents, they welcome students to have more diverse learning experience or even uh, seeing different uh, people from different parts of the world earlier because in one day that they when they come to the uh, you know from the work field so they will see a lot of people from different parts of the world anyway so uh, when they got this opportunity to uh, you know to mingle with or to learn different cultures from their peers I think it's a good opportunity and uh, you know schools in Hong Kong as I said earlier quite a lot of uh, schools they have already uh, a meeting international students, especially DSS schools. So we trust that like, we have uh, a good foundation to support these students. Mr. Chan? Yes, uh, I, I basically agree with uh, what Ian has said. Uh, because uh, uh, our schools are, are increasingly uh, becoming more and more open, uh, just like uh, arrangements of their, say, uh, overseas visits, uh, including those to the mainland. So I think... Uh, our students, uh, teachers, and hopefully parents as well are becoming more open-minded because eventually students educated in Hong Kong when they grow up may not make their living in Hong Kong. They might work uh, in, in other places. So it's good to give them an early start of this kind of uh, exposure to an environment which is not exclusively uh, uh, dominated by, by, by the kind of local habits, uh, local cultures, and, and, and local population. But then uh, it's far easier said than done. Uh, a lot uh, will rely on, on arrangements and also support from, from the government because the, the, um, the conventional kind of arrangement which has, which has been made by the government or even dictated by the government may not be totally... Um, uh, conducive to this kind of uh, further opening up of our, our educational environment in Hong Kong. Right, and, and even if we did bring in more students from the mainland or overseas, I mean, is it a problem about uh, how the students will be distributed? I mean, obviously, students would tend to go for the more popular schools. I mean, so will the problem of under-enrolled schools still exist? And uh, for, for popular schools, um, certainly there are limits to their, their enrollment. So if their, their quota uh, gets filled, it, the um, students or, or their parents will have to make, uh, uh, make the move to, to, student, uh, to schools uh, which are considered by them as uh, belonging to a lower tier in, in, in terms of re uh, reputation. So uh, since this is an, an open system, um, the chance of getting students um, is... is I think it's fair, and the allocation uh, will go on uh, un until seats are filled. It and if uh, a school has become uh, full with uh, with enrollment, it can't go on uh, indefinitely to 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 bring in more students. But then uh, maybe later we will talk about the, the door locking places, and that 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 is related to our context. 
And you're, you're getting complaints from local parents that uh, international students will be crowding out um, the best local schools if you follow that path. Yeah, uh, because after all, uh, Hong Kong does have uh, the kind of elimination uh, in, in, in terms of uh, uh, school place allocation. Uh, always uh, is the popular ones that that uh, that uh, go first because uh, they will be thrown by parents and students looking for uh, always uh, the the, uh, the better schools. Uh, what, uh, which they consider will give the stu- uh, will children better prospects in terms of uh, future university, university education or career advancement. All right, so Mr. Chung, I'm going to have to stop you uh, there for a moment because we need to take a quick break for the news. But of course, we can continue our discussion for a bit longer afterwards. And now if you're tuning in and you want to ask our guests questions or share your views on today's topics, you can leave a message on our Facebook page, a Backchat on RCHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rchk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. And here's a quick look at the weather. Cloudy with occasional showers and squally thunderstorms. The top temperature will be around 26 degrees. Winds moderate east to southeasterlies. 24 degrees at the moment. Relative humidity, 91%. It's now 9.30 with a news summary. Here's Ben Che. Hong Kong Electric says a power glitch that hit parts of Hong Kong Island on Wednesday was caused by a backup cable being accidentally electrified. This created a short circuit. It said engineers had been performing maintenance at a substation at Cyberport when the incident happened. The Center for Health Protection says it's investigating a confirmed case of monkeypox. It involves a 34-year-old man who's unvaccinated against the virus. He developed a rash on April the 12th and went to a doctor's on Wednesday when he was admitted to Princess Margaret Hospital. He's now in a stable condition and in an isolation room. And the SpaceX founder Elon Musk has insisted the test launch of the most powerful rocket ever built was a success, despite it exploding minutes after takeoff from Texas. Starship wasn't carrying anyone on board. It was meant to spend 19 minutes on a near-complete trip around the Earth before splashing down in the ocean. But the rocket burst into flames after almost four minutes of flight. I'll have more news at 10. In recent decades, we have been using more and more disposable plastic tableware, whether for dine-in or takeaway. But it's often only used once and will harm the environment. For the environment's sake, the Environmental Protection Department reminds the public and the catering sector to reduce the use of disposable plastic tableware for both dine-in and takeaway. Don't use disposable plastic forks, knives and spoons. And bring a reusable container for takeaway or packing up leftovers. Starting March 20th, investor identification is required for all stock trades in Hong Kong. Before buying shares, brokers or banks must have investors' consent under data privacy laws to submit their identity information to the Securities and Futures Commission and the Stock Exchange. This information is for market surveillance and only authorized personnel can access it. Investors who do not provide consent will not be able to buy stocks and can only sell shares they hold. Act now to respond to consent requests. Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Friday morning with Danny Gittings and me, Janice Wong. Still with us on the program is Mervyn Chung, Chairman of the Hong Kong Policy Concern Organization, and uh, Leung Siu Tong, the Honorary President of the Hong Kong Aided Primary School Heads Association, and Dion Chen, Chairman of the Hong Kong Direct Subsidy Schemes, Schemes Schools Council. 
Um, and just before the news, uh, Mr. Cheung, you were talking about uh, the uh, door knocking um, system arrangement. Um, do you think, I mean, I mean, there have been talk about getting rid of it. Do you think that would help um, solve this problem of under-enrolled schools? Uh, it will help to some extent to relieve the... Um the distress of, uh, of, of schools or, or the uh, relatively unpopular schools. Because every year uh, close to summer, we do have uh, quite a lot of parents who are unhappy with uh, the, the essential uh, place allocation results for, for their children uh, who try to approach their preferred schools for this kind of discretionary place. Or which we call door, uh, you know, door locking, uh, because they lock on the door of these uh, uh, popular schools uh, to to try uh, to request the uh, the, the school uh, administration or or the head teacher to admit the, uh, their children. So um, altogether, we have at the moment around three thousand seats for both primary one and secondary one, uh, which are. Uh, called it the discretionary places, places or door locking places, uh, for for, uh, uh, for uh, to be given by 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 this pop, uh, by this popular schools. So um, I think uh, to start with, we can reduce them. Say uh, for each school on average, it's about two to three for primary one, and then uh, for uh, for primary one in in the school, and then to. Two, around two places, if I'm uh, wrong, uh, uh, Dian will correct me, uh, around two places uh, from each secondary school. So if we can uh, reduce it uh, to only one, then uh, quite a lot of places will be, uh, will be relieved uh, to help uh, the, student pop- uh, uh, the student distribution uh, for the less popular schools who would otherwise take their, uh, their hardest hit if the lock, uh, door locking places are maintained. It. And uh, I think in recent years, with the satisfaction counts hitting new highs in the uh, central um, school allocation uh, re- uh, results pattern, uh, the demand for these uh, door locking places would become less. So it it might not be a, a very big hit to, to students and parents if we try to uh, cut it from uh, two to one. And still, uh, parents who are, who are longing for the children to go into the aided schools will still have the chance because uh, when these schools do have uh, vacancies through, say, emigration, uh, these parents can still uh, apply to, this, uh, to these aided schools to get the children in. You mean transferring in at higher grades? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because uh, it's been reported that uh, quite, quite, quite a lot of uh, vacancies have existed in in a group of eighty schools in Hong Kong. Maybe Dian can can so figures uh, from from his school. Well, uh, maybe not just from your your school, but more generally, uh, Dian Chen. Do you do you agree, Dian Chen? Yep. Uh, well, uh, I think uh, of course, like uh, we know that the number of students are not enough. Or, or declining, or okay, just what that, okay? Uh, in Hong Kong, then certainly some schools they do not have enough students. Uh, I think the government already like make a very clear direction that it seems like the government would like to, uh, you know, the schools to have a better strategy to maybe merge together, and in order to reduce the number of schools, so that the uh, the impact won't be like, uh, you know, 
affect the whole of education uh, overnight. So uh, then we have a longer time to prepare for it. Uh, I think, the, of course, we can see the number of shares are not enough in some schools, but uh, we also uh, suggest to the government to further consider about the number of, the, uh, I mean, the class size for each uh, class in the secondary school or primary school, because we believe that it is also an opportunity to review the class size. So I hope that these kind of measures can also uh, solve the issues we are now facing. How, how low would you like to see the class size go? Now, for the primary school, we, we can see like probably about like uh, 23 students per class. Uh, I know government is uh, approaching to that uh, direction, and almost 90% of the schools are, uh, are on that end. And for the secondary school, we are now talking about 31, 32 students, uh, whether there's some leeway to further reduce that by a few more students. And uh, it could be able to provide uh, more room for the students' and teachers' interaction in, in each lesson. As, as a teacher, we know that like uh, within 40 to 15 minutes lesson, and we, we may not have too much time for the teacher-student interaction or even among students, and they do not have too much dialogue for the discussion and so on and so forth because of the large number of uh, the large number of students in the class. Of course, compared to the old days in Hong Kong, that now uh, nowadays the number of students certainly uh, reduced a lot. Okay, but like whether we still have a little bit of room for further improvement, I believe that we have. Just to follow up on something you mentioned earlier before the news, you were talking about uh, local schools, especially DSS schools, uh, adopting international curriculums, uh, uh, normally that's IB. Uh, but, but my understanding is the government imposes quite strict quotas on DSS schools. I've even seen it in my own kids' school that um, limits on the number of um, students in DSS schools who are actually allowed to follow IB or other international curriculums. Is that, is that correct and is that a problem? Certainly, the government has certain uh, requirements set for the DSS school who is uh, running the uh, International Curriculum, yes. Uh, DSS school mainly, we offer two different curricula, and uh, if not IB, there will be a GCA level or we call that International A level. Uh, we can see the number of schools having this kind of curriculum are increasing because we believe that like uh, DSS schools, we have flexibility, we shall uh, you know, offer more opportunities for our students. Uh, of course, some, uh, the government sets certain quota for the student for the schools. Okay, uh, for the students studying in the international curriculum, the number of the DSS schools having international curriculum are increasing. So I believe that the students they can uh, also find the right DSS school to study such curriculum. But they mean that sometimes you have to turn. Certainly in my children's school, uh, uh, um, kids have been turned away from studying the IB curriculum because the numbers who want to do it exceeds the quota that the government sets for that school. Um, this could be a situation. Uh, as I said earlier, like the international school, they have their special possessions in Hong Kong. And uh, DSS school, we also have our uh, sort of descending in Hong Kong. That uh, DSS school, the, the design of the DSS school is to provide the, um, I would say, predominantly the local curriculum to the students. So that's why, like, uh, those who study in DSS school, they understand that, like, uh, they should study in local curriculum. But if the school has the international curriculum, so they have one more option. But that option is not like, uh, free for everybody for, uh, to choose, okay? So there should have some uh, different schools that have their own criteria for selecting students or letting students to go into international curriculum due to the uh, criteria, right. due to the quota set. All right, I just want to go back to Mr. Lung uh, very briefly. Yes. Mr. Lung, um, yes, just earlier, earlier really we were talking... Earlier, we were talking about door-knocking quotas, and uh, Mr. Cheung was suggesting that, uh, that the door-knocking quotas should be uh, reduced to help uh, uh, tackle yeah. the problem of under-enrolled schools. Uh, just finally, um, do you think that would work? Uh, of course, uh, these are the uh, 
uh, some measure that we can uh, do it now. But uh, for the long term, I do think that actually I do agree with uh, Dion that uh, we should cut the, the class size to 23 for primary schools. Uh, and then and actually there are some schools, they have 36 classes on the whole. And I do think that they have to move back to 30 classes or move back to even to 24 classes. Then there, there are more uh, places can be allocated to other schools as well. And in the end, I do think that the government should think of the fully uh, implementation of small class teaching as soon as possible. Uh, I do think that it is a, another better way to let uh, the school have uh, uh, a lot of places for other, uh, maybe um, some uh, some schools that can't uh, get too many uh, students, okay? Um, actually, I do think that uh, these are the uh, long-term measures that the government should think of. All right, uh, Mr. Leung, we'll have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. And that's uh, Leung Siu Tong, the Honorary President of the Hong Kong Aided Primary School Heads Association. Many thanks also to Mervyn Chung, Chairman of the Hong Kong Policy Concern Organization, and Dion Chen, Chairman of the Hong Kong Direct Subsidy Scheme Schools Council. It's now coming up to uh, 9.42. And in a moment, we'll find out more about a new box jellyfish species discovered in Hong Kong. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. I'm Gilly of Consumer Council. Happy birthday, LTHK, for your 95th anniversary. May I wish you always filled with positive energy, continue to discover and report accurate, impartial and objective consumer news for consumers to shop smartly every day. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. A Hong Kong Baptist University-led team has discovered a completely new species of box jellyfish in Maipo. To find out more, we're now joined on the line by members of the research team. And that's uh, Dr. Carmen Orr, Manager of Wetland Research at World Wildlife Fund Hong Kong, and Ringo Cheung, Ocean Park's Animal Care Officer. We're also joined by Charlie Young, Curator for Ocean Park's In Park Jellyfish Project. Good morning to you all, and thanks for joining us on the program. Um, Dr. Orr, can you uh, first tell us how the box jellyfish was uh, discovered in Maipo? Yeah, morning everyone. Morning. So I'm coming from the Maipo Nature Reserve. Actually, my uh, daily duty is to do uh, research and monitoring at the Maipo Nature Reserve. So it's kind of interesting, the discovery, because it was back in 2020. And it was in the afternoon after I have lunch. And because our office is in the middle of the nature reserve, so I still have some time and decide to take a walk in the micro nature reserve. So as I walk along, and then at uh, one point that I arrive at a gateway, which is a shrimp pond, then I discover a lot of jellyfish is, uh, uh, in the pond. And then that number is around 300 to 400 jellyfish floating on the surface and this is something that is really abnormal that we don't normally see in the nature reserve. So I call my colleagues to come out and look and also take some samples to look closer. And of course the first question that comes into mind is 
change your mind mind uh, to understand what is happening in the uh, in that and also what easy is this so we went to ask different marine experts and tried to know more, more about the species but it is really hard to identify just by photo so at the end of the day, it needs DNA analysis. So we reach out to also some labs in Hong Kong to do some DNA analysis. And interestingly, we found that uh, actually none of the uh, species in the gene bank could match with the species that we found in micronature research. So it kind of uh, uh, tell us there's something unusual happening with this species. So we also reach out to our uh, uh, micro-management committee members about our findings. And um, <clears throat> Professor Chiu uh, from the Hong Kong Baptist University is also one of the members of the committee. And he is very keen to know more about this species as well. So he takes up the lead in doing the analysis and then that's how we discovered that it is actually a new species found. And we are really grateful that uh, Professor uh, Chiu take up the lead and do the research. So you, you basically discovered this new species, didn't you? I mean, and it's, um, sometimes they name new species after the people who discovered them, but in this case, it's, it's, it's named after Mai Po, isn't it? Um. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. So uh, at the same time, it's also interesting that along the way, I talked to different people because uh, in the Mai Po Nature Reserve, there are also people, visitors coming to the reserve to look do bird watching and wildlife watching. So along the way, I ask people whether they have seen the jellyfish as well. But actually, there are people who also seen the jellyfish uh, during the period. So it's not just me, but I'm just the one who tried to put forward the, uh, the analysis and try to find whether there are people who are interested to do more. Right. So, and... and- and you just um, told us that uh, you, you spotted the jellyfish in a stream or, or kind of like a pond. Um, it, it's kind of rare to find jellyfish there, right? I mean... Um, yes. yes, indeed. Uh, it's not the first time to see jellyfish in the pond, but it's really rare to see so many in one spot. So that's how it triggers my... Uh, uh, yeah, my interest on this topic. Why, what I really want to know is, uh, how did the jellyfish get there? Mm, interesting. Uh, we are not sure either, because uh, at the moment it's only found in the Maple Nature Reserve. And it's only found in a selected number of ponds, not all the ponds that we have. So at the moment it's still a mystery how they got in or how they came up. Right. And uh, also, I mean, like I mentioned earlier, also joining us now is uh, Ringo Chung, Ocean Park's uh, Animal Care Officer. Good morning, Mr. Chung. Hello. Oh, hi, hi Mr. Chung. Um, like, like uh, I, know, I know some of the uh, box jellyfish, uh, it ended up um, in uh, Ocean Park. Uh, how, how, I mean, how did that happen? Uh, we, back in 2021, and we have been talked to Carmen in WF, seeing that... Um, about this new species and we are very interested in getting some of these new species to be keep in the ocean park that we call uh, some of them in my bowl right i know and uh, i know you've been responsible for rearing uh, the box jellyfish um has that been easy oh it is absolutely quite a challenge for us at the beginning because there wasn't any information about this new species and like Carmen just mentioned before, uh, this 
species require a very special senality to keep them because we basically find them at uh, mangrove. So unlike other jellyfish species, then we can always get a reference from other aquariums or paper. But for this one, we have to look at the water parameters in my bowl and compare the temperature and senality in different seasons in order to get the best range for us to keep these new species. Also with us is uh, Charlie Young, a curator for Ocean Parks um, in Park Jellyfish Project. Uh, I mean, Charlie Young, we, 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 it's wonderful new species to be discovered. We, we must remember jellyfish can, are, are very dangerous, aren't they? You don't want to run into one on the beach. Yes, good morning. Hi. Yeah, um, usually the jellyfish, they got the recorded thing, so, so when you touch it, you will got sting. So uh, we usually just not touch them and try to collect them or pay with them. I think it's the, when you encounter them in the, at the beach, yeah. But how about this new one, this, this the new species being discovered? Is it one of the more venomous ones, or is it relatively... I, I know some of them they can be extremely dangerous and people can die within minutes, and others, um, uh, you just need to go to the hospital and so on. But, um, where, where does that fall in that sort of spectrum? Yeah, for uh, species, we got it, uh, box jellyfish in uh, Australia. They are venomous. Uh, but for this species, we haven't done any research for this species, so we can't tell how poisonous they are, but uh, we better just not uh, collect them or touch them. Yeah. Right. And Dr. Dr. Orr? Yes. Um, will you be doing any tests uh, uh, to find out how venomous uh, this uh, new box jellyfish species is? Uh, at the moment, we still need to find someone who would be interested to do such research. So, yeah, we still need to look for someone to do this. Right. And can you uh, tell us a bit about the physical features of this uh, new jellyfish? I know that so, they have a, a lot of many, many eyes, right? Yes, yes. So it's also very interesting uh, in terms of the external features. Uh, first of all, it's called a box jellyfish. So it, uh, the belt of the jellyfish is like a box rather than just simple round shape. So for a box, then you could imagine it's like a square. And in each corner of the square, like four corners, uh, it has uh, three tentacles extending out. And also for the corner of the bell, they have eyes. So each corner has six eyes. So and among that six eyes, two could actually uh, form images because the eyes have length. But then the other four eyes is uh, uh, eyes that could be type of light. So basically it could... Um, Kind of see something through its eyes. You can see through, through all its eyes, but it, do, it doesn't have a brain, right? Jellyfish don't have brains. No, not really. So, yeah. is it sort of conscious, or I mean, is it? Yeah, yeah, I would say kind of conscious. And um, for the eyes, uh, it's suspected to be looking for prey for the species. Uh, yeah. Right. And Miss Chang, when you when you take care of uh, this uh, box jellyfish, do you have to take uh, special precautions? Oh, definitely. We have to wear gloves when we touch it because uh, we are not sure about the poisonous. So we better just leave them alone. And when we have to touch them, then we must wear the gloves. Right. And, and there are other types of jellyfish at, at Ocean Park. I mean, how different are they when, when it comes to uh, um, um, you taking care of um, them? Oh, for this box jelly, they love sunlight because as uh, 
Carmen just mentioned, they have a more complicated eyes than other jellyfish. And other than that, they swim much faster than other jellyfish too, because they have paddles. It's kind of a paddle structure at the base of their tentacle that gives them the, the frogs when they swim. So they swim much faster than other jellyfish. The doctor, so far this jellyfish has only been found in, in my popa by you, but um, um, I, I, I read some suggestions that it, it, it may exist elsewhere in the uh, Pearl River estuary. Is, is, is it, do, is, do you think it, it exists elsewhere as well? Yeah, um, because for my Polynesia Reserve, all our ponds are actually connected to the waters of the deep bay area. So uh, their connectivity in terms of the water flow. And that's why we would suspect that it's could uh, potentially be found in the debate areas as well. It just needs someone to find this species and look for them. Does that mean there's a possibility you might run onto it in a beach somewhere around Hong Kong or in the Pearl River Delta? There's such a possibility, I would say, because uh, in terms of uh, connectivity of water, yes. Right. And Ms. Young, um, how many box jellyfish uh, does uh, Ocean Park have right now? Around thirty to forty, right? And jelly. right, and and uh, I know there are plans to uh, put them on display in future. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, we have the plans to, to put them on display, but now they are just subpedal stage. That means they still need some time to grow up. So we think that maybe one to two months when they become adult, then we will put them on display. Right, and uh, I mean, I mean, will there be any uh, special? Will it be ex- uh, similar to existing uh, jellyfish displays uh, that are going on in Ocean Park, or, or will there be a, a special kind of um, display? Yeah, we have the uh, jellyfish display in Ocean Park that is uh, sea jelly spectacular. So we would put this box jelly in one of the display tanks. Now, Dr. Orr, I mean, they, they, my po, you and other conservationists have been in my po for so long, and then they just you, you chance upon uh, this new species. Is, is it possible or that there are other new species, not necessarily of, of, of jellyfish, but other new species in, in my po that have been yet to be discovered? Or just, is this... Yeah. So actually, it's not the first discovery in the Maipo Bay area in terms of new species. Uh, I think the first one is back in the 1978, which is a crab and also named it after Maipo after the discovery. And throughout the years, I think there are several other new discoveries as well. And the last one is back in 2015, which is a beetle found in the Maipo Nature Reserve as well. So uh, based on that, uh, we would say uh, or suspect that there are definitely a lot of uh, discovery waiting for us to look for. And there's certainly a chance of finding new species here as well. Yeah, so if you found a new species in 2015 and then you found another one, this um, uh, the jellyfish in 2020, I mean, it does, yeah. it's, it does suggest they, they're still... I mean, it's incredible to think that. I mean, my po you've investigated so thoroughly, but yet you still keep finding new, new species. How, why is that? Yeah, it kind, I would say it kind of indicated how high the biodiversity we have in my po and also generally in the deep bay area. At the same time, it... Uh, still a lot of things that we are not uh, known to us as well. So there are a lot of things that is uh, waiting for people to look for and also study. 
because when, when we live in Hong Kong, we almost just take Maipo for granted. I mean, we know it's a great place for birds to uh, stop yeah. and, and try to think, but uh, we don't think of it as really this uh, incredible biodiverse area. Do, mm. Is it un underappreciated in some ways? Yeah, so for me, it's also really uh, 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 something unexpected to me because um, I wouldn't uh, expect there could be a new box jellyfish found in the Maipo Nature Reserve. In terms of box jellyfish, it's uh, just a fourth, uh, uh, for this genus, it's a fourth species in this genus, and also PFSD before this century. There's no PFSD uh, record of box jellyfish in Hong Kong, so it's something really wouldn't have thought of before. And as I'm sure you're aware, the, the news of your discovery of the box jellyfish went round the world. I mean, there's stories in British newspapers and so on about, about this. How, how did you feel about something you chanced across on your, your lunch break uh, become sort of international news? <laughs> yeah, I was looking at the news this morning, like scanning through Google and looking at, wow, it got to the other end of the world. Uh, I mean, the news. So it's kind of something I, I wouldn't expect either. I'm really happy about people uh, getting to, uh, wanting to know more about this season and try to understand how high the biodiversity we have in Hong Kong. And uh, have you been working with uh, Ocean Park on other uh, projects uh, before or, or are there any other plans to, to work with them uh, in the future? Yeah, I'm really grateful that the Ocean Park is interested in uh, doing more uh, <clears throat> a rearing of the jellyfish and also uh, being very active to uh, uh, taking care of them. So uh, I also look forward to uh, for future chance of collaboration with Ocean Park. And maybe we were talking about my poem and what precious resources. The situation in in my my poem in terms of conservation is is stable, isn't it? My poem is not under any there's no immediate um, uh, pollution threat coming down from the uh, Po River Delta industrial production or anything like that. You're you're reasonably satisfied with the position in my poem at the moment. Yeah, for the micronature reserve, because it's a well-protected area at the moment already. So in terms of direct threat, like uh, uh, direct having a loss or uh, uh, something like that, it's not that uh, urgent. But for uh, areas around the micronature reserve, like uh, the deep bay wetlands, there are certainly, of course, uh, threats in terms of development and also pollution and also different kinds of threats in the area happening. And there's also something of concern in the future. It's sometimes referred to in terms of development in the new territories, even the northern metropolis, but yeah. that wouldn't affect MIPO itself, right? Yeah, because uh, in terms of wetland integrity, it's actually one piece of wetland rather than a single piece of wetland. So uh, birds and animals certainly would... All right, uh, so Dr. Orr, I'm afraid this is all um, we have time for. Thanks again for joining us this morning. And that's uh, Dr. Carmen Orr, Manager of Wetland Research at World Wildlife Fund Hong Kong. Many thanks also to Ringo Cheung, Ocean Park's Animal Care Officer, and Charlie Young, Curator for Ocean Park's In Park Jellyfish Project. Many thanks also to you who commented or emailed us today and to our guest presenter Danny Gittings and producer Angie Mann. Jim Gold and Mike Rouse will be back on Monday with another edition of Backchat.